0: We're going to be in Hebrews 12, 1 through 11 this morning. Hebrews 12:1 through 11, if you'd turn there. The recipients of this letter to the Hebrews uh, likely were ethnically uh, Jewish Christians. And uh, they were of the dispersion. And based on all that comes before this passage, we can see that they were experiencing some level of persecution. And that was on the um, continuum somewhere between being shunned, uh, but had not quite gotten to being martyred but they were being persecuted in such a way that was disrupting their community of faith. And the writer of the Hebrews sends this message to these people who are considering giving up. That is why the writer pins these words from Hebrews 12, 1 through 11 as an encouragement that Christ will give them the faith to endure. As we read these words this morning, I want you to consider this question. When am I most tempted to just give up? Hebrews 12, 1 through 11. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight in sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is marked out for us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these words that we're about to to discuss could be entertaining, are boring, thought-provoking. But without your Spirit, they can't be life-giving. And that's what we're wanting this morning. We're desperate for the life that comes from your Spirit alone, that we can't muster up, that we can't pat ourselves on the back for or just think good thoughts and wish to ourselves. We need your Spirit. Father, that's what we pray that you will touch our hearts by your spirit and apply these words to our heart. May we see Jesus, and in, being, in seeing Jesus, may we be encouraged. For it's in his name we pray, amen. In my sophomore year of college, I took an early childhood development class. And you might ask why a philosophy major would take an early childhood development class. Let me make it very, very clear there were a lot of nurturing females that would take an early childhood education class. (laughs) And so I took an early childhood education class. They actually came in handy in my life, but uh, most of the time I zoned down in that class, to be honest with you, except for one day when they would show videos. I love when they show videos. I'm a visual learner. And they showed this experiment of a visual cliff. Those of you who have taken child development know what this is. They have a table that looks like it has a drop-off and actually does have a drop-off, and uh, it's in the the black-and-white squares that a a young uh, infant can see. Then they put a piece of plexiglass over that, and they set the infant who can crawl on one end of it, and then they place the mother on the other side. And you could watch as the infants would crawl up to the edge of this cliff and look down and look very perplexed, and then would look up at mom, thinking, is this Okay. Can I do this? Can I I come to you? Is this possible? And so what they discovered is that when the mother looked joyful and encouraging and was smiling at the infants, the infants would actually make their way across this invisible field over this presumed drop-off to reach their mother. Immediately I thought of the words of Hebrews 2. 12-2 Twelve two in the NIV, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. The course ahead looks difficult, the drop looks deadly, but if we're going to endure, we're going to have to step out, if we're gonna step out on faith, then our eyes have to be on Jesus and not on the chasm that's before us. When we put our eyes on our situation, our faith, being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see, starts to falter and we're more prone to give up. And that's exactly where we find the people who receive this letter. The implied exhortation here is not to those who haven't started the race. It's more to the people who have started the race and have hit the wall. They're tired, they're persecuted, they're hemmed in all sides, they're done, and they want to walk away. But this pastor Pins these words to them so that they'll understand that their focus is in the wrong place. And that to endure their focus must be on Jesus. Are you weary this morning? The writer tells us that while the cloud of witnesses might motivate us, when it comes to endurance our focus has to be in a different place. Because our focus on Christ is what empowers our faith to endure. The ESV says, look to Jesus. The NIV says, fixing our eyes on Jesus. The Greek word here is aphoreo, and it's an interesting word. It means to turn away from one thing in order to look to and fix our eyes on another. For every way in which we're called to focus on Christ, there is something that competes for that focus and would distract our faith and clouds our vision. So in what ways are we then called to focus on Christ? Well, first, we focus on the work of Christ on the cross. Second, we focus on the power of Christ in the lives of his people. And third, we focus on the eternal joy that is in Christ. Let's look at the first one. First, we, we focus on the work of Christ on the cross. Look at verse two. It says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. But in order for us to focus on Christ's work on the cross, we first have to turn away from self-assurance. Because the cross is not a place where we can mix any of our work. The cross is the place of Jesus' work alone. Our efforts do not belong there. In fact, our efforts have to fall down before the cross. The NIV says he's the author and perfecter of our faith, and I really love that translation. And there are two ways to take that expression. Either Jesus is the moral example of what it means to live out our faith, our system of belief, or he's the one who birthed our personal faith within us and he's the one who brings that personal faith to completion. Now certainly there's something to be learned here from how Jesus endured and there's something to be learned from his example and there's many passages that talk about following after Jesus. But these words cannot be reduced to just be like Jesus. They cannot be a theology of moral example because this robs these words of the depth of their significance and it, and it empties and obscures the power of the cross. When we marginalize the, the power of the one-two punch of author and perfecter, our focus will drift to our own self-effort and we'll get our eyes off the most important thing, that Christ is the one who brings us to faith And it is Christ who completes our faith. Why is that such a big deal? It's a big deal because of the sin that so easily entangles us. When we sin, when we're struggling with sin, and we fail, we tend to want to give up because we think that our sin has somehow disqualified us to be followers of Jesus to be participants in the race. We say, I've proven myself unworthy to be called your child, and I might as well just exit this race, because you don't want me here anyway. If Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith, what it means is this. Struggle with sin does not disqualify you, because it was not what qualified you in the first place. Your struggle with sin does not disqualify you because you weren't qualified. You didn't enter the race because of what you did. You entered the race because of what Jesus did on the cross, period. And you don't leave this race course because you still struggle. Because it is Christ who authors our faith and it is Christ who perfects our faith. You know, there's a really, really bad analogy, I think. It's a good analogy for, for parenthood, horrible analogy for faith, for walking by faith, and that's riding a bike, learning to ride a bike. You know, you take your kids out to a very uh, level place, soft ground, and put them on the bike, and you're walking along beside them, and then you let go, and they zip along for a little while, they fall down. You pick them back up, they're crying. You, You hold them, it's okay, get back on, you can do this. You put them back on the bike, you send them off, and they fall down again. And you repeat this over and over again, right? Until finally, at one point, you just let them go, and and they're just driving on their own, and you're so proud of them. That's great parenting. Keep it up. It's a horrible analogy of what Jesus does with us. And unfortunately, I think we think that Jesus gets us on that bike, he walks along beside us, and then he lets us go and then we're pedaling on our own, we don't need him. That's a horrible example of what Jesus does. The better example would be a bicycle built for two in which he's driving and you're sitting back there pedaling almost uselessly behind him. <laughs> no, there's some effort being expended I'm, I'm, uh, in, in sanctification for sure, but it's a tandem ride. It is not you on your own, and Jesus is getting you to a place where you can do it all by yourself. That's not faith. Because what's going to happen is when we crash, we're going to crash hard. And if we think that we disappointed Jesus and that we're no longer worthy to ride alongside him, then we're going to want to exit. We're going to want to give up. And that's exactly where we find Peter. But Peter was struggling under the weight of his own sin, but he was also struggling under the weight, the weight that it talks about in this passage, the, 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 just the weights of life, the fact that he's not got it all together. These are situational circumstances. Maybe a handicap, maybe a personal problem with us. We can struggle because of those weights as well as we can struggle because of the weight of sin. Peter was struggling with both. I mean, when, when Jesus first met him, he was trying to fish. He's a fisherman and he can't fish. Jesus has to help him. It was a sign that he was going to have to depend upon Jesus for his whole ministry, for his whole life. And where we find Peter after he denies Jesus is in the upper room. And when he hears the words that Jesus has risen, what does he do? He runs to the grave just to make sure it's true. But what does he do after that? Okay, now we've got to get on with the mission. No, that's not what he does. He says, I'm going fishing. I've, I've disappointed Jesus, I've fallen so far, I've denied him to his face, I've said I don't know him. I've called curses down upon myself. There's absolutely no way that guy's gonna let me back into the ministry with him, much less be the leader of this group of people. Rock, I'm sand. And so he goes out and, he, and he, he's fishing Again, not well, because he's not caught anything. <laughs> and once again, Jesus brings that catch of fish. Jesus goes and finds him. Jesus brings him back. And Jesus shows him, Look, Peter, I told you at the beginning when you confessed my, my name, you confessed me as Son of God, it was from the Father. And your faith, I'm going to help you endure. Many of you know that. Many of you understand what that feels like. I know very well what it feels like. I remember in college when I was trying to be involved in ministry, and there was this moment where everything about myself, all the negativity about I, I, I'm a failure, I can't do anything right, no one looks at me as a spiritual leader. All these things that I tell myself just crowded in on me one morning, and so I had one of those Car ride conversations with God, you know what I'm talking about where no one else can hear and you're insulated and you can yell just as loud as you want to? That's what I did. And I said, God, if you're calling me to the ministry, you really have to open my eyes here because I don't see anything in myself that, that is, <laughs> that qualifies me. Here I am, come get me otherwise I'm done. And I showed up at the campus ministry that morning, we had a building, and I walked in and there was this holy moment where the room was just completely empty, which was not normal. And I looked up at a post where people would post messages, and there was one. And I walked over, come and get me was in the air. Still in the air. Still hanging there in the air. And I pulled this note off. It was from me. And it just told me what an encouragement I'd been. I said, okay, God, I get it. I get it. It's not me anyway. The point is that When we focus on the fact that we're not qualified, which we aren't, and not the fact that Christ has qualified us, we're going to become discouraged. He is our author and perfecter. But perfecter means a little bit more, and that takes us to the second way we focus on Christ. We focus on the power of Christ in the lives of his people. Look at verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and run with endurance the race marked out for us. This cloud of witnesses illustrates the power of Christ in the lives of his people. And we see this clearly if our eyes are in the right place. We have to turn our eyes first from our inability to see Christ's ability. Flip back over in your Bible to chapter 11, if you have a Bible with you. This is typically what we call the Hall of Faith, and these are the guys that you heard about in Sunday school growing up. Abel, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Samson, David, Samuel, Gideon, they're all there. It's a daunting list, and, and according to the writer of the Hebrews, we are metaphorically surrounded in all eternity by these people. While we are on the race course in here and now, But when you look at the lives of these people, we we typically make a crucial mistake. We, We either try to emulate them in our own power, be a Daniel, dare to be a Daniel, be a Moses. Or worse than that, we say I could never have that kind of faith. I'm no Moses, I can't lead people. I'm no Abraham, I can't lay everything on the altar. I'm no Sarah, I can't keep believing that God's gonna keep his promises. I'm no Joseph, I can't endure hardship and see how God has turned it toward my good. I'm no Samson, I'm not strong, and I'm no David, I can't even deal with my inner demons much less fight giants. And that's right, you can't do those things, and neither could they. Neither could they apart from God, apart from faith, and apart from His power. Those people are just like you. They had sins that entangled them, And they had situations that they had to bear. Moses was a stutterer and a murderer. Abraham was a polygamist. Sarah laughed at God and encouraged her husband to be a polygamist. Joseph entertained revenge on his brothers. Samson threw his convictions away for a woman. And David was an adulterer and a murderer. And Gideon, oh Gideon, I love this guy. He's called to be the strong, mighty leader of an army, and he's threshing grain in a cistern so he won't be found cowering. The focus should not be on what we can't do, our inability. When we camp there, we're going to feel defeat. Instead, it should be on what Christ has done. That's why these people are called witnesses. And to what do they witness? They witness to Christ's power at work in them, to make them more than they could ever be in their flesh. Transforming them in ways they never imagined. So the author of Hebrews isn't saying, be like Moses. He's saying, look what Jesus did with these people. They failed just like the rest of you do. But look what he did with them. Look at what he made them to be. Okay, here's the obligatory running illustration. You know, you have to have one when it's Hebrews 12, 1 through 11. It's fifth grade. It's the president's physical fitness test. This is like a uh, highlight reel of the things that Zach can't do. (laughs) And so every day of this week, it was one more thing that, oh, Zach can't do that either. he's just hanging there. Can't even do a pull up. It's so sad. But we finally got to the running part, and I thought, you know, this is somewhere where I could excel, maybe, because I was a sprinter. I could go fast, and we had to run the mile. I didn't understand that you can't sprint a mile. <laughs> maybe some of you who can run can, but I can. And so I took off, running full speed, was ahead of everybody by a lap, and then the inevitable pain in the side, and the...
1: Oh, my heart's going to explode.
0: And meanwhile, everyone just passes me. And they're cheering for me to keep going. And I'm like, I can't do this. And I kind of jog a little bit and walk, jog a little bit and walk, and finally make it through this mile. And I can see the disappointment on my coach's face as he's writing down my time. (laughs) President's not going to like that one. That was always in my mind, and in my mind, I could never run a race. So when I started running, and, and many of you find people said, we, we should ride a 5K with me, or, no, I can't do that. I can't do that. It's, that's not, it's not possible for me, because I'm the kid from fifth grade who couldn't run the mile. The problem with that kind of thinking is that if there were always the fifth grader who can't run the mile, we're never gonna even try. And that's not a rah, 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 pick yourself up by your bootstraps and go. That's a look what Jesus can do in your life. You are not where you were when Jesus first found you. I guarantee you that. He's worked to overcome situations in your life, and He's worked to overcome many sins in your life. There aren't super saints. They're just sinners saved by grace. Many of you believe that God can't use you. And you look at this list of people who changed the world and you say, I can't do that. I I don't think it's possible. Look, I'm not saying that God is calling you to change the world, but I am saying what scripture says. He's calling you to change somebody's world. And by being involved in someone's life, by discipleship, in evangelism, and just being A friend who says, look what Jesus did in my life. And witnessing to that fact, that's changing somebody's world. Who believed that they were going to be a screw up for the rest of their life. Or that God could not pull them out of the deep, deep sins in which they are stuck. You think you're not qualified, but here's one of those sayings in the church that I usually disagree with sayings in the church, but I love this one. This one's holy scriptural. God does not call the qualified, he qualifies the called. That means that you are able, in Christ's power, to change somebody's world. You lay aside the weight of can't. Oh, but what about the weight of sin? Sure, God forgives my sin, I understand that, the cross, grace, but I don't think I'm ever going to change. It's because you've got your eyes on, your, on the here and now and not where you come from. Because God will change you. The fact that he finishes the work he's begun is a testimony to that. So wherever you are, wherever you're struggling, God is gonna, 10 years, 20 years from now, you're gonna be moved down the field. Will you be perfect? Absolutely not. But you'll be able to say the same words that John Newton said, former slave ship captain who wrote Amazing Grace. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I, I, I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be in another world, but still, I am not what I once used to be. And by God's grace, I am what I am. He's changing you. He's forming you into the image of his son. Real power. And when we get our eyes off of that, we feel immense defeat. Understanding the cross and his work in us brings us to the third focus. We focus on the eternal joy that is in Christ. So what do we turn from? We turn from temporal difficulties. Starting in verse 3, read along with me in, in either the bulletin or in your copy of God's word. Considering him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? These people had experienced some level of persecution, but it had not come to the point of shedding their blood. The struggle with sin here is not inward sin. At this point, it is external sin. When it says that Jesus was opposed by sinners, that's what it means here. People sinning against us. And that takes various forms in our life. It's either people persecuting us for our faith or the sin that we experience on a regular basis just being in church with people who are sinners. That doesn't happen, does it? Oh, yes it does. And it happens often. We experience the righteousness that's in work in people, but we also experience that sin in people. And when we experience it, it causes us to struggle. But whatever that struggle, whether it be something that's going on, a situation in your life, a difficulty that you're trying to get through, the personality of another one that's just really grating on your nerves, maybe sitting in the pew next to you, don't look around. Or whether it's actual persecution for your faith. When we experience this kind of intense situation, our first thought goes to, God must be punishing me. He's not very happy with me and so he's punishing me. See, it's just what I said, I'm not qualified. So God's punishing me. We begin to believe the theology of emotion over the theology of truth. And that's why the writer of the Hebrews had to say, look I know what you're feeling but let me tell you something. Your sons, your daughters, you're not urchins. You're not illegitimate children. And you know, you know how I know this? Because God's disciplining you. Look at verses five through 11. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary in, when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And it goes on. Parents, you know how this goes. You discipline your kids, and that's not punishment. Just to be sure we're using the right terminology, I find that word coming out of my mouth too much. You discipline your child, and they say to you, you don't love me. Have you ever heard that? They go into the room, shut the door, scream, you don't love me. Or they scream it to your face. You don't love me! And we do the same thing with God. We sing how he loves us, but in our heart we wonder, does he really? Because if he loved me, I wouldn't be going through what I'm going through right now. Kids, if if you are experiencing discipline from your parents, let me reassure you. They only discipline you because they love you. And our Father only disciplines us because He loves us. Discipline is not punishment and reproof is not rejection. And I'm going to say it again because I want you to get that. Discipline is not punishment and reproof is not rejection. And whether it's the 40th time you've heard that or the first, we have to keep repeating it because the emotion That we feel is so powerful and it clouds our vision. And it causes us to believe lies. And one of those lies is this If I had enough faith, I wouldn't experience the difficulties in persecution. I mean, look at all the heroes in chapter 11. In fact, some Christians teach that you don't, if you don't have enough faith, you will experience persecution. And we see God as this um, faith scale or heavenly lotter- lottery or slot machine, and we just pull the, the handle on. If we have enough faith, ding, 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 it's all going to line up, and the blessings are just going to pour out. And the prosperity is just going to keep on coming. And it's going to be all smiles. And that's a lie. And I can say that's a lie because of Hebrews 11:32 32 through 39 and I want you to turn there. If you have your Bible, if not, please write this down and go look at it later and meditate on it because it's so important. The author writes, and what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of the fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign, foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection. All oh, this is good stuff so far. It makes us feel like that small. This is why we feel so defective, but keep reading. Some were tortured. Refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and in dens in the caves of the earth. Doesn't sound like prosperity to me. And all of these, all of these were commended through their faith, or though commended through their faith, did not receive the promise. All of these had faith, no matter whether they were experiencing difficulty and persecution, or they were experiencing this amazing conquering through the power of the Spirit. Both sets are firmly entrenched in their faith. For every Daniel who shuts the mouth of the lion, there's a Stephen who is stoned for his faith. Trials and difficulties are not the result of lesser faith. They are part of our training as sons. And we lose perspective when we lose the eternal perspective, and that's what we see here. We have to turn away from those temporal things toward eternal joy. It says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. How did Jesus do this? Verse 2 who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy was eternal communion with the Father. That he had done what he was called to do and now He was going back for eternal communion with the Father. And that is no less our joy. But it's rarely where we put our eyes. Joy is a difficult word. Too many times we correlate it with happiness, and happiness is not joy. Sometimes it involves happiness, but many times it doesn't. So what is joy? Have you ever had a day when you were working very, very hard, and ladies, either you put something in the crock pot or your husband's a gourmet cook, I don't know. Or guys, your wife is an incredible cook. You've been working hard all day, and you're weary, you're tired, You still have a lot more to go, but you smell what's cooking in the kitchen. You smell that aroma coming and you know what you're gonna feast on. And it's gonna be good. And though you can't taste it now, though you don't eat it now, you know that that meal is going to be something that gives you strength. Joy is the aroma of heaven. We sense it in part. We know that there's a feast waiting for us. And that keeps us on the task of the here and now. And when we lose that focus on the eternal and put our perspective on the here and now, we become defeated. What is that eternal feast? Well, some people look for rewards. Some people look for crowns. And I don't wanna knock it if that's what you're living for, but Communion is what Christ lived for and that's what helped him endure the cross and scorn its shame. Eternity is going to be you looking full on to the face of Jesus Christ and seeing him face to face. Everything you feel you've missed, every lack that you have within yourself, every defeat, every misery is going to pale. In comparison. And you're going to be lost in the joy of seeing your Savior face to face. That's what the feast points to. And that's what we're waiting for. That's where our eyes have to be. Like that little baby on the edge of the precipice. Looking over saying, can I go forward? It looks difficult. But looking into the face... Of the mother and the joy that calls us through the dangerous things of life over the abyss into faith, not in ourselves, but in what Jesus has done and what he continues to do as our author and perfecter. Where's your focus this morning? Is it on the chasm? Or is it full on the face of Jesus? where all our hope and all our empowerment to live for the here and now comes. Let's pray.